Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 450 of Constructive Criticism. I'm Eric Spencer. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, a co-host that's been with me for, I I would assume, close to 300 episodes at this point. Yeah, I think that sounds right, because I think my first episode that I was on, like, as a person, was around, like, the two-somethings, and then I was behind the scenes for a little before that, so... That sounds about right. Yeah, I, I I know that, like, you definitely weren't on as a person before 200. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you started during just the Spencer-Michael era. And that was yes. definitely after 200. So you're, mm-hmm. like, a year, at le- like, a year away from, like, definitely being, at least participating in 300 episodes. Yeah, I, I, I think if you count me on camera or whatever i've got to be like right around the corner from 300 but it's wild yeah it's crazy man i four four fifty is is you know uh we've been doing this the podcast started 10 years ago this year and Mm -hmm. it's crazy to think about um we're not going to talk about how long the podcast has been here today we're going to talk about uh proactive and reactive sideboard cards and the type of things that you can kind of do in your sideboard with these type of cards and, and how it should impact how you both how you build your sideboard how you prepare for sideboard and things like that before we do that though the point of the podcast is to be always improving we want to be getting better each and every week and mason you're gonna go first what was your always improving moment this week yeah my always improving moment comes from pioneer where uh my friend trey uh was wanting to play an rcq and he wanted to play the Atraxa deck, the Neoform deck. He was like, do you think it's pretty good? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I think the deck's good or whatever. I wish I could help more, but I'm kind of busy. And then after I got another commentary on Saturday for the NRG, uh, he was in top eight. And he had a, just drawn into the top eight in round five. And so I got in the car and I drove over there and watched him. And I was watching the deck play and I was looking at the sideboard and everything. I was like, dang, this just like seems really close to great, but just someone hasn't like gone and actually mapped at the sideboard. So... Uh, Trey and I like sat down and talked about sideboard mapping and sort of like what things look like and spitballed some stuff and got the sideboard to a place where I was much happier with it. And then just got in to start actually like playing a bunch of magic with it. And I've played seven ish leagues now and I've four won all of them so far. And I just like it's incredible how the always bring one comes from like sitting down and actually putting the work in and like mapping out those sort of things gives you such a huge edge, especially when your deck is something that people aren't quite ready for and it's doing things so powerful and proactive in the format so uh, i've been loving this deck and i just can't get enough of it and so that sort of whole process was my most improved moment what is sideboard mapping so like we uh laid out our sideboard and just talked about exactly where we wanted every card in every matchup and specifically the thing that sort of spurred this was the deck like a lot of people are playing two to three dresses in the sideboard and it was just like we never want to be a seven duress like a seven discard spell deck like that's not how your deck actually functions and so we looked at how we wanted to bring everything in and then just fit cards to fight that matchup to fight those matchups and then make sure the sideboard's small every time so there's one matchup in the entire like guide that i have uh that has more than five cards being brought in and almost every matchup has three to four cards and you're just doing a bunch of small changes because of the tracks that you actually see so much of your deck and you just want to take your card that's sort of the weakest in the matchup and then replace it there so we mapped out how we want to sideboard every single thing how we want to take the approach if we want to take a tempo game plan or a combo game plan because the deck can do both and then just like went got in the league and just immediately like 
barely lost one for the five. And just like, it's been like that every single league I've played, or it's just been my deck is great. I keep crushing in. So it's Trey. So it's been awesome. Also, I've had to work with him forever. So it's been nice. Yeah. I love Trey and I love hearing this. Um, man, I feel like I've tooted the horn that you're tooting right now, like way too many times on the podcast. People are sick of me saying it, but you should do this. <laughs> like, like you should have a reason for cards that are in your sideboard. Like, one of the one of the things that's happened to me a lot in coaching, like when what like like historically is like people want to go over deck lists with me, and mm-hmm. they'll go over their deck list. They're like, "What do you think of this? What could I do to improve this?" And you know, one of the things that comes up is like, "Why do you have two disenchants in your sideboard?" And they're like, "For mm-hmm. artifacts and enchantments." I'm like, "That is not a reason. Mm-hmm. That is not a reason to have. That is not a reason." And. Yeah. Uh, what Basin is suggesting here is, I, I think I, I think we did an episode on building your own sideboard guide, mm-hmm. and I think even I think we've actually done multiple on it. And I would highly recommend doing exactly what Mason's talking about, like sitting down and talking about this because it is both will help you improve as a player, and then uh, Mason, this is something that you and Henry were tweeting about today, but like mm-hmm. the value, the the extra value it gives you when you actually buy a sideboard uh, sideboard guide. Yeah, this is something I think uh, I learned from CC back when I was a listener. But writing your own sideboard guide um, before you buy one, I think it's super important. Even if you like, you don't even know what's going on. Just like take thirty minutes and just try to think about like the top top couple of matchups and what you think might matter, and then write you know some ins and outs, and then write like what you think the key cards are. A thing that I do in coaching uh, coaching a bunch when I like go over people and people want to work on sideboard guiding. Or sideboard guides or macro game planning is I always tell everyone pick the matchup you want to play against, like you want to talk about with against your deck. So for, let's assume we're talking about Rakdos versus the Neoform deck, right? I'll tell them what are the three best cards Rakdos has against you in the main deck, and what are the two worst cards. And then once you identify those, you do the same for your deck, and then you go and you go like, okay, we've identified these things. How do we want to sideboard with that information? And then think about how they're going to sideboard, and then from there you can sort of get an idea of the matchup and what's going on. And so I think that's really important. And so if you're out there and you're having issues with sideboarding, I really suggest doing that whole exercise I just talked about. I think it leads to great dividends and sort of understanding a matchup. And you're going to get stuff wrong, but that's okay. You're going to stumble, but you're going to get back up again and learn, and you'll improve at these things consistently over time. Yeah, I love it, man. Uh, for me, I had uh, a lot going on the last little while, like just kind of preparing for this RC and I, I, while I'm not doing it solo, like I'm working with a couple of people, the team that I had put together based on the first RC, just like, I don't want to say fell apart. Um, you know, QJ didn't qualify and Matt didn't, uh, didn't try to qualify. Um, the QJ had like 11 top eights and just didn't convert. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, a couple of people actually just quit magic, uh, just Jeez. due to like really, crazy stuff so it's just been me patty b and um you know uh hopefully this week i'll get a test with um mr uh mr william jackson who took third in the um challenge this weekend with mono white but Mm -hmm. we've been kind of preparing a little bit in silo but like communicating but one of the things and uh shout out to our patreon because i'm going to be doing something for this is kind of working on standard making sure my deck follows what I believe the rules of engagement are going into the RC. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'll be doing is making a video for patrons only 
that has the rules of engagement of my belief of the rules of engagement for standard going into the RC. And then what I'm trying to do is I'll have, I'll have the three decks that I'm considering and going through them and like, does this follow the rules or not? Um, as I, as I try and pick my deck. And Mm -hmm. I think this is something that people should do more often when picking a deck. I know that I fall into the trap of like, just wanting to play my favorite cards or cards that I believe are powerful or have a powerful interaction rather than actually looking at like, okay, what do I need to understand going into this weekend? Uh, What are the rules of engagement for the weekend? And am I passing those or not? Or Mm -hmm. have I done something that skips some rules or something like that? And uh, Mm -hmm. this is something that I've actually had people do in coaching too, uh, where I'm like, Hey, I want you to be able to explain to me what you believe this format is about and the things that a deck has to do to be successful. Um, and if you can do that and you can articulate that to me, we can actually move a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And not really like that. And this is something that I, I'm going to do for the Patreon, but it's also something that I'm doing personally as I prepare for San Diego. Mm-hmm. Are you excited for San Diego, by the way? Not to get off the always improving thing real quick here, but you know we're a week away from it. Um, I guess we're a little over a week away from it now, but where are you, where you're at on that? Are you excited? Yeah, I, I think that it's really funny. Um, the, there was another podcast called first strike that had an episode, um, about kind of the, the last, uh, the last RC brand of RCs and, and kind of the Canadian mm-hmm. stuff. Cause they're really Canadian focused. And it was really interesting to listen to that podcast and hear kind of the differences in their opinions from what we did in our standard mega rankings. Mm -hmm. And I think the format has changed even more and is ever evolving as we approach the USRC. And I, I honestly think this is like one of the better standard formats. It took me a really long time to, I think, understand where I want to be in the format and why I want to be there. And I'm a standard guy. Like I play a ton of standard just for fun. So if, if I'm saying like this format is complicated and people just assumed Grixis was the best deck for a long time and didn't push the boundary. And now we, you know, we just had the the second Canadian Narcy. There were no Grixis decks in the top 16, actually mm-hmm. zero. Um, And I think that that's a testament to like, pushing the boundaries of a format and what a format that has really interesting things. Um, I actually just kind of a shout out to you. Like I actually think the Parmesan theory in this standard format is true. I actually mm-hmm. think that Grixis it's only Parmesan it is either a form of uh shield, lots of Sheldreds and lots of like, there are different ways that Grixis can build Parmesan into its deck, but it has a mm-hmm. baseline Parmesan of the, Fable interaction. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that kind of everyone's aware of that. And it, I think it is actually important to be able to break stalemates uh, in this format. And you have to find a way to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I think one thing about when just talking about like the no Greg sis in the format, this is often what I'm talking about when I say formats are sometimes more fun when there's not a ton of pressure, right? Like, because there wasn't so much pressure on standard before this RC season, there has to be all this exciting development, right? And, like, players got to figure out all these new cards. And, like, 
some of these cards and decks have basically been here since before all do one, right? Like Esper Legends doesn't have that many all be one cards in it, you know? And so I, I think that like it's really cool to see sort of the innovation and like what excuse me, so sorry, what happens when players um actually try the format and really push the boundaries and have the incentives to do it. It's and, really and I don't cool want to take thing. anything away from the people that have been like in the challenges for the last X months, right? Like there are people that have been crushing challenges with Grixis, crushing challenges with Mono Blue, crushing challenges with Mono Red even. And that the, that takes nothing away from them. We're saying that they've developed the set of rules of engagement and now people have to attack those rules. Yeah, I, I think it's... It felt like I was diminishing someone's accomplishments. It wasn't the intention. No, that, no, no I, I'm not saying that you were. I'm saying like... That, uh, well, this will be something that we have to talk about when we get to seasonal play, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that some amount of seasonal play is about recognizing where to pick your spots. And um, one of one of my teammates was really surprised to hear that the biggest challenges have actually been standard challenges lately. They're like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's been modern challenges for two years. Like, yeah, well, guess what? Standard challenges are always X number of people now. Both of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the pressure on the format, right? It's that people believe they have something, they want to try it, and they want to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's really unfair to ask, like, six, like, because before standard challenges were always 60 to 40, I'm sorry, 60 to 80 people, and they were, like, kind of the same people, right, with, like, a small amount of churning. Yeah. And, like, and that's unfair of anyone to solve any magic format, right? Yeah. It's sort of like not doable. And I wouldn't put that on any group of players. And so, uh, you know, like it really takes the whole hive mind and things have to adapt and there has to be incentive for the work to go. And I think we have that now with the Pro Tour and it's super cool. Uh, I feel like we got really off basis a little bit and that's my fault there. I'm no, I, 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 think we I, stayed, I think we stayed on the rules of engagement. I tried to keep it on track there, but um, we actually in just, just for, if people are like, what does this mean? What is Spencer talking about? Um, it's not in the next two months, but we do actually have a quote unquote rule series in the backlog of, of shows to be doing. So, mm -hmm. uh, all right, that's it for always improving. Uh, let's move on to, uh, Patreon. Patreon is the way to support your favorite podcast creators. Uh, one of the things that we typically do is we give a shout out to our newest patrons. We have no new patrons this week. But one of the really cool things as we get into our housekeeping is one of our benefits is that if you are a patron of $10 or more, you get free entry into our quarterly opens. Um, these are events that we do online for all the listeners to compete against each other. Um, uh, we have a trophy. Uh, we uh, also follow the format of whatever the current season is, uh, quote unquote, for the RCs. Um, it's really fun and it's it's been cool. I got to look at some statistics today for our last two, and we're going to be announcing that one today. So if you want to become a patron of $10 or more, you get access to early access of the show, live shows, um, you know, all the, the Patreon posts that I do, whether it's decklist dumps for standard that I do every so often. Um, we have some stuff coming down the pipeline, but um, the thing that I just talked about, like this, this thing will be available on that as well. But one of the really cool benefits is that you get free entry into that uh, into that open series that we're doing. Let's talk about housekeeping though, Mason, because uh, we're looking for sponsors. 
And I got a question from a listener. They were like, yo, what's with the fake sponsors? And I was like, I forget that people uh, are not listeners of the Even Odds pod that listen to this. Where did the fake sponsors come from? Well, the fake sponsors came from Ludwig. So if you are if you know popular streamers, Ludwig actually had a, a podcast a long time ago. And the myself and Trey, who I talked about earlier, we had a podcast on the CC Network called Even Odds. And I would watch Ludwig's podcast, and they always did these fake ad reads, right? And their ad reads would be for things like, you know, like uh, seal milk. It's what your kid needs to grow or whatever, you know? And they would they would always straight sell it, face it, you know? And just, like, things like that. And I was, like, showing it to Trey, and I was like, God, we should just do that on our show. It would be really funny to have something like that. So that's where, like, Passage Juice and Car Insurance – and, you know, we had, like, this sort of sponsor spot here, and it's like, we might as well just have a little fun in the episode while we don't actually have someone to put in this spot. And so we just did some fake ad reads, and I know a couple people, Spencer, fell for Versace Juice. I, I had people message Dude, me. I did, getting... too. People actually asked me about Versace Juice. And what was mm-hmm. funny is the, the comment that brought me to this point was, mm-hmm. I thought that you guys got real new sponsors, and then Golden Goose Gaming, when Spencer read the website... And it was mm-hmm. ridiculous. I finally realized they weren't sponsors for the podcast. Yes. So, yeah. uh, one, we are so good at reading fake ad reads that people fall for them. So, if you want to sponsor the podcast, reach out to us. CCMTG.info at gmail.com. Uh, we can write fun ad reads uh, to engage our listeners. And, yeah, we, we have. I'd be happy to pitch to you. Um, yeah, check us out. Uh, however, I want to give a swag store update. I got a CCMDG shirt today. Are you wearing it? I'm not. Uh, I don't like the layout of the CCMDG shirt, so I'm going to change it. And I want people to know that. Uh, I'm a fat guy right now. Uh, I haven't always been a fat guy, but I recognize when something needs to be fixed and changed. And one of the pieces of feedback that I had taken is that the way that the CCMDG shirt was laid out was not good for um for women uh because yeah. of how we had it yeah, anyway it wasn't good for women and so i changed it and then i looked at it today and i was like well this isn't good for me as a fat person and so uh there will be multiple options for t-shirts available in the swag store uh before this podcast is even posted It'll be something that I do before the podcast even goes up. So you can check out the new swag store and the new options available for t-shirts. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm always looking to improve stuff like this. So if you buy something, you don't like how it looks, you don't like the feel of it, let me know. I know that we've had a lot of swag store purchases since we started doing this part of the segment. And uh, I'm always looking for feedback on things we can do to improve it. So, uh Mason, do you do you want me to announce the next thing, or do you want to do it? You do it. It's it's your it's your sort of the thing you take the lead on, you know. All right. So we teased it last week, but we do have a sponsor, and uh, we are ready to announce the next CCMTG open. We are a little late, and I want to be transparent with listeners that the Q one open is technically happening in Q two for CCMTG. Uh, 423 is the date. It's the best date available to make sure that we're not interrupting people's schedules with different major events across Magic the Gathering. But yeah, April 23rd, 2023, Pioneer on MTGO. We're going back to MTGO. It is Pioneer season. 
And one of the one of the really interesting things uh, of different types of feedback that I've gotten is like, how do I prepare? What do we do for seasonal preparation? And as somebody who tried to do seasonal preparation for Pioneer on Arena, I don't I don't think it's worth it. I don't think that it's worth your arena investment. I don't think that it's worth your time. Um, I honestly think that like when Pioneer season comes, you're going to see massive Pioneer uh, events on MTGO. You're going to see Pioneer leagues pop off. And until Intel Explorer becomes Pioneer, we're going to support the format that is on the client. And yeah, so uh, I already know we're going to get questions about why we're not doing Explorer on Arena. That's the reason. But I'm going to shout out our sponsor. We got Kayfabe Cards. Uh, literally, we, we just had regionals for the Pokemon TCG. And, I, and uh, you know, if you, if you got to look at that top eight, you might have seen Kayfabe Cards there. If you're a fan of Flesh and Blood, you might have seen them sponsoring Flesh and, the Flesh and Blood Pro Tour. Kayfabe Cards uh, is owned by longtime SCG grinders uh, Nick Lassen and Jonathan Job. And they've agreed to sponsor our Open with $500 credit plus. Um, so the way this will work, just like every Open, is 200 credits and a trophy to first, $100 credit to, to second, 50 to third and fourth, and 25 to the top eight, and then additional prizes based on attendance. Um, you know, there's a small way to change that'll change. They are a TCG Pro Store, so the way that it'll work is you will place your order for in-store pickup, and then you'll just call them and they'll switch it uh, and make it, you know, use your credit. But yeah, other than that, it is a really great sponsor. They are uh, kind of an up-and-coming card shop uh, here locally to me, but they are from, you know, areas, and they're they're two, two long-time Magic players. Um, you know, Nick has judged Pro Tours and played on Pro Tours, Jonathan Job was the mainstay on, you know, the uh, the SCG circuit. It's really cool to get to work with these guys that have both been friends of the show for a long time and also just you know, they they're just they're just good guys that um have made a really good product in their store and I'm really excited to work with them. Yeah, we're really excited to have them sponsor the thing and work with them. Cannot wait to see how that all plays out. I can't wait to see what gamers bring for the pioneer, the right? Like this is people. This is apparently uh, in not in my part of the U.S. Is this the most popular format in your part of the U.S.? No, it's modern, not close. Yeah, it's modern, not close here. But apparently, there are parts where all of the RCQs, like literally a hundred percent of them, are pioneer, and that will be true when we do this. Yep. Well, that's that's the way the new system works too. So you know, you got to get ready. Yep. All right, that is going to do it for housekeeping. Let's go on to our main topic today is a training ground segment. If you don't aren't familiar with our training grounds, these are typically episodes that you might want to save. These are things that we go over a topic that's going to help you improve at magic. This isn't like a format specific thing for today. This is a long time evergreen style episode. So get ready for the training grounds as we talk about retroactive and proactive cyborg cards. So Mason, this part, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong. Kyle's a patron, right? Mm, Kyle's, Kyle's a patron of the show and friend of mine. Yeah. So, so talk to me. So this is suggested mm-hmm. by a listener. 
yeah, so Kyle, a uh, friend of the show and patron of the show, had this idea. And this is one of the things that, too, you know, like if you're a patron of the show, we always interested. We're listening to anybody. But if you're a patron, you're in the Discord, and we have some conversations about this sometimes. Where basically Kyle was talking to Abe, and he was talking about, like, I think it'd be really good to talk about proactive versus reactive cards in your sideboard because so often I'm not sure if I want to have, like, a bunch of cards, like, that are more reactive in nature or more proactive. So to give a quick example, we're going to go over this in more detail, like a reactive card might be like Aether Gust or Negate, right? Like something that is responding to what's going on. A proactive card might be something like a Mirren Crusader or a Blood Moon, you know, that sort of gets ahead of it. We'll go over that in more detail later. Um, but, you know, that sort of sparked the idea in the conversation they had. And now we're here doing this uh, topic because Abe's gone right now, and so no better time to do it than now, you know? Yeah, it's funny. We moved this episode twice, and mm -hmm. it's one that Abe really wanted to do, um, but kind of just due to scheduling, like, we just, yeah. Abe just gets to be a listener and tell us everything we got wrong. Or right. Abe mm -hmm. could just tell us we did this perfectly. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. I mean, we, we are going to do it perfectly, Mason. We're going to crush it. Uh, that being said, I, I do I do want to talk about, like, how we defined this in our in our meeting notes when we were talking about this is it was cards that react in your sideboard versus things that threaten your opponent. And mm -hmm. I, I don't even know if that is how I would really describe this. I think we might have even gotten our initial description wrong. Yeah, I think what we were saying a little bit before the show, uh, you know, I sort of how I make sure we're on the same spot here is the way that I like it most. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I sort of feel like reactive cards are things like um aether gust or something that like needs your opponent's card uh in order to react to it in order to be something yeah so, i i was thinking disdainful stroke so i think we're in a really similar vein mm -hmm. yeah yeah something that just like is so overtly something that you're bringing in to answer a specific problem and while a card like blood moon uh which i would say is a proactive card answers uh, a specific problem like lands or whatever sometimes blood moon can also just be this thing that changes the way the game is played so for proactive cards, I think sort of the definition that I like or the way I like to think about it personally is there's something that changed something about the game and they are like a thing on the board or a part of the game. So the sample stroke is a part of the game that since it reacts to what your opponent's doing, while Blood Moon sort of changes the game where Stony Silence changes the game. I, I do think that there are cards that maybe fall into both categories and we won't touch on those today, but like some number of discard spells can sometimes fall into this. I know that, uh, for example, Mason, Thoughtseize is actually a really popular sideboard card for certain decks, or like Duress, and that both answers a problem and then pushes your solution. It, and, you know, that can happen. We're, we're, but we're not going to talk about those cards today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to be talking just sort of about like what the implications of these cards are and sort of why you would choose to put them in here. And really, uh, sort of my always improving moment sort of ties into this, right, where it's like, mapping your sideboard, having plans and figuring things out. That is sort of what we're going to be talking about today through the lens of reactive versus proactive sideboard cards. Well, let's talk about reactive first. Uh, what do you think the definition of like a reactive sideboard card is? I think it is something that specifically responds to what your opponent is doing in order to be effective. So uh, we talked about negate, disdainful stroke. Those are things that require your opponent to play a card. I think like Rending Volley, I would say, is a reactive sideboard card. That's something that, you know, needs your opponent to play a white or blue creature in order to actually do something. Yeah, a huge a huge conversation um, as we look towards the RC. Um, 
you know, just behind the scenes into the CCMTG Discord is Knockout Blow got a lot of conversation this week in our Discord. And how many Knockout Blows versus Sunset Revelries do you play in a deck like Mono White? And uh, if you look at the results this weekend of the uh, Canadian RC, you might see a lot of different numbers on these type of things, but they're doing the same thing. They're reacting to your opponent's game plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is sort of like why you choose these cards typically is that these ones are more often like eights or nines at their specific thing. They sort of often do it in a one-off sort of way, right? So it won't solve the problem forever, but it's very impactful in that moment. So, uh, you know, Knockout Blow, Rending Volley, uh, Death's Mark, these are all cards that sort of, when used in the right spots, are highly efficient and highly impactful into a game, but they don't have lasting effects outside of killing something, right? Where they don't have something that changes the dynamic. They sort of solve a problem in a much more traditional cyborg card sense. Yeah, in a lot of ways, like if you think about, um, I'm, I'm going to use Sheldon as an example because, you know, as somebody that plays like a lot of green red decks or a lot of decks that might have problems with five toughness, you know, uh, I think Mono Red is, has been playing things that kill five toughness creatures for the last like two years. And those are reactive cyborg cards, right? Like they're saying, I have a problem, I need to react to this problem. And, uh, you know, depending on what you're doing, in fact, uh, I'm just going to use the last winner of the CCMBG Open as an example. So one of the cards that was in our Mono Red Cyborg uh, winner, by the way, if you were curious if Mono Red, Mono Red was good a long time ago, our Open winner played it, uh, and they had Redding Flames in their sideboard. This card is two and a red for an instant. It deals five damage to target creature or planeswalker. If that permanent is a spirit, it deals two. And they had a game uh, where their opponent made two spirits and they were able to win with Rending Flames. But like this is only a card in your sideboard because you need to deal with high toughness creatures in a deck like Mono Red or Gruul um, or even like Blue Red, right? Like you need to be able to like kill something that you wouldn't normally be able to kill with, uh, you know, like a Lightning Strike or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also, like, it's important to note the way that you think about cards and choose to play them really matters here. So a good example of this might be, like, if you put a Blue Sun's Twilight or an Invoke the Winds in your sideboard, that can be a reactive answer to Shieldred, despite being a card that's proactive if you choose to play it and think of it in that way, right? So sometimes cards are going to blend here, but this sort of goes to the, the main idea of having a game plan beats no game plan all the time. And knowing the reason you're putting your cards in your deck and playing them is oh so important. Because if someone else just picks up your deck and like, oh, there's a control magic, I guess I just bring this in against all creature decks. And you're like, actually, no, that's really just a way to answer Shieldred. You know, the mono blue deck is really weak to that card. So I just this, play a bunch of... This, this is so true in current standard that I want to hammer at home, Mason, in that like... Um, one of the questions that I had going into the RC was which is better, Blue Sun's Twilight or Invoke the Winds? And it wasn't a question of... One of the questions to be answered is when do I want this effect? Do I only want it versus Obliterator or Vindicator or Sheldred? Or do I want it against Fable, right? Because I can just two mana steal the token or, you know, you know whatever. And that that's this is really important. It goes back to 
our, you know, our always improving segment. 100%, yeah. And sort of knowing what your plans are for those cards and the battles you're trying to fight really inform those decisions a lot. And so I just wanted to mention that on reactive cards because we're sort of talking about these cards in like a weirdly narrow range, but they often play more than they than we're saying here. But it's important to sort of have a way to categorize and shoebox them so that you can sort of then, once you have the idea, know how to play them and how to sort of angle your cards against other cards. So that makes sense. Well, I, I think... I don't know if now is the right time, but I think that a car can have, can be both, right? Like Mm -hmm. it is, you, you mentioned having a plan. Like we, this is something we harp on on the podcast a lot, but one of the things that you need to be able to do is decipher, like, what am I trying to do with this card? Am I trying to be reactive or proactive? And we'll get into that later in the episode, but I want to talk about proactive cards really quick because this, this was actually hard for me, Mason, and I'm going to talk about this. Um, proactive cards are cards that you are putting the question to your opponent. You are saying, can you beat this? Can you do this? Can it, it? Did this make the game so difficult that you can't overcome this? And, you know, I think Modern is a really good example of where these cards become more popular. Where they're like haymaker cyborg cards in a lot of places. Um, some behind the scenes, I ha- currently have three, uh, Phyrexian Vindicators on my sideboard of Mono White as one of the decks for the RC Mason. Why would I do that? You want to beat up on creature decks. Yeah. Basically, uh, you know, this, this might change because of the results of the RC in Canada, but like, uh, as somebody that really likes creature decks, like this card is impossible to beat in a lot of different cases. Uh, if, if it lands, you get, you, you like draw three cards for free. You can attack your opponent. It, it just, I mean, it's a four mana five, five flyer. So it beats down really well too. And that's just standard. And if you think about formats like pioneer and modern, like they get way better. They get so much better. Mason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The efficiency rate really goes up as those formats go backwards. And, that's the other part of this whole thing is that react, uh, proactive sideboard cards can be things like you mentioned before the show, like blood at the beginning of the show, like blood moon and stony silence. But also these like threats are also these proactive sideboard cards. I think uh, like a really good example of this is the suspicious stowaway from the RC in uh, Canada this past weekend in the Esper Legends deck, where that is a card that they sort of bring in in the mirrors and in other like grindier matchups is the thing that's like, hey, you kind of have to beat this this changes the dynamic of the game so, so much, and you can't just sit there and not cast spells. You you kind of, like, you start to ask questions, and what's really cool about proactive cyber cards is you typically have them because you know your opponent's going to have a hard time answering them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carnage Tyrant is sort of an old an oldie, but a goodie in this example, right? Like, can't be countered, hexproof. 7-6 Trample. It's like, all right, well, how do you beat this thing? And the answer is you probably didn't, you know? Only good thing they'd be a Carnage Tyrant was another Carnage Tyrant. And, like, having things like that are very important, especially in uh, when it comes to, like, those bigger creatures and lower power formats like Standard, where if you find something that has an exploit in the metagame, they probably don't have broad enough sideboard cards to answer it. Where if you played that in Modern, your opponents might just have some cards that invalidate it 
due to just this wide parallel. Yeah, I, I think a really good example of this that we could help the listeners understand is like, let, let's go out of standard because I, I think that we're, it's really natural for us to talk about this. But any time that you have, you know, something that is pu- pushing the boundary, right? Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to ignore something like Blood Moon or Magus of the Moon. I think that it's actually important to talk about where this is this is saying the game is about this thing now. Um, and I, I also want to say that there are other versions of this where you're making the game about something. I actually think that uh, the Pro Tour that we just had, the Reduke one, he had a very proactive sideboard in his card uh, in his site. Very proactive card in his sideboard, sorry. Um, do you know which one I'm thinking of, Mason? Hullbreaker Horror. That's right! What just happened? The whole entire thing changed. What What is going on here? Th- that is Reed and the, the Channel Fireball team sort of taking their combo game plan and moving their deck to have this sort of proactive new sideboard plan that is basically zigging when your opponent is zagging, right? If they're trying to, like, hey, if I bring in card like Necromentia, your deck just doesn't work, they're like, well, not only will your Necromentia names be wrong, but I didn't just fight through these cards pretty easily now. I just have six real real six real cards in my deck instead of, you know, these four combo enablers and two combo pieces. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked then that I learned from that, and I'm going to use this moment to talk about this, is, like, my cyborg changed in my modern deck against necromantia style effects because of what they did where i'm like okay what if i just put castable threats that i'm really happy hitting off of a creativity into my modern creativity deck right then i get to be proactive against the things that they're doing so the example that i will use in this is i started playing fury in my sideboard of uh creativity so that i could beat the green black um yog decks and then i'm like well okay uh is fear how many matchups is fury better than grave titan which is the card that i was playing before for that matchup and how often does this do the same thing like if i if they if they take away my creativities right uh what do i what am i left with well i'm left with a very castable fury that is really good in the matchup Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll see players do stuff like that, where you know some players play the Eldrazi Titans to beat the Mel decks, but also if their opponent shows them Necromentia, they're like, "All right, and we're cool. It's time to get in," you know, and they'll do that sort of thing too. And so uh, this is something that you'll, you'll do at every format level and every power level. You know, in Legacy, we see this happen too with Reanimator decks, right? Well, those sideboard show and tell in the blue builds and be like, "All right, I am now sort of you know dodging your sort of hate." So. Uh, it's something that is very common. It'll be helpful in all your sort of match the magic, understanding these cards and how to use them. Uh, so really quickly, before we move on, I, I think we missed a segment and that's my fault as the host, but why choose a proactive versus reactive card, Mason? Yeah, so a proactive card is going to change the dynamic of the matchup and make it where it is thing that your opponent now is forced to answer typically and put them on the back foot. So uh, a good example of this might be something like Phyrexian Crusader or Mirren Crusader in Old Modern, where 
those cards were incredibly hard to answer and invalidate. And by playing them, your opponent sort of had to change the whole game plan and had to figure out a way to stop them, or those cards would solo you. Um, you know, a similar thing to like Blood Moon uh, sort of does this too, where it changes the dynamic. Typically, that is preying on specific strategies, but it makes the game about something else. And then that can either buy you time or be something that you protect with other reactive sideboard cards and sort of a mixture to go the distance. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, what, it, what's really interesting is like both of these are really format dependent, right? Is because you're either asking a question that a format can't solve or like most decks in the format aren't prepared for or you're answering a really common problem in the format. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that's something you've got to figure out. Um, how, how do you think that you know, though? Like... I, I just said that they got to figure it out, but like, let's help them. How do you know if a problem requires a reactive or proactive answer? Uh, typically, it's going to come down to the play patterns of the matchup and how your deck lines up against their deck. And so that's an important thing. We talked at the beginning of the show about like, hey, think about like, you know, their three most important cards and their two worst cards and the same for you and sort of go from there. Uh, this is sort of like the next sort of level that of like, okay who is sort of favored in this game and what kind of role am I taking and then playing and building your cards according to that role that you want, you a want to play the games and B you think the games are played on. So to give an example uh, in modern with like four color, a lot of my sideboard, in fact, basically all of it is reactive cards outside of Chalice of the Void and Elish Norn, where I'm in most parts just answering what you're doing. And because I know my deck can't play that proactive role and I can't really turn the corner. So I don't try to force something like, you know, an Eldrazi Titan or a Crusader or some sort of, you know, uh, creature like that or some hate bear. You know, I instead just choose to play the role that my deck is doing. But in a deck like Murktide, where you shift your dynamics up a bunch, you might want to be more having more flexible cards and cards for lots of different roles and sort of being able to play the games the way you want to and sort of figuring out, like, okay, this is how games play. And then once I understand that, I can then build my sideboard to help play the game plans that I want to play that I think abuse this the best. Yeah, I, I think that, like, uh, we did an episode on, like, problem, uh, kind of, like, problem validation and, like, you know, how to approach. I think I think it, it's lateral thinking part one. And... This, this is part of that where you you need to understand like what is the thing about before you can answer this question and it is it is about uh there's a, there's a really funny tiktok mason i'm sure you've seen it of like uh where does this thing fit into this baby toy right and it's the answer is always the square hole the answer is always where does the circle go? Oh, the square hole. Where does the triangle go? Oh, the square hole. Where does the cylinder go? Oh, the square hole. Where's the, you know, and it's really funny, but it is unfortunately not how it works in magic. However, it can be how it works in magic. You can fit different tools into different spots so that you can maximize your 15 cards, but you have to identify the problem first. You have to know what you're trying to solve. A really good example of this is Right now, if I was to play Grixis at the RC, uh, I I would play Disdainful Stroke. And that has to do with the mono-white matchup. 
and how popular that deck is, and the problem cards that match up, like Farewell, and uh, the Wandering, whatever the new one, the Eternal Wanderer, is that the name of the card? Yes. Yeah. And kind of understanding, like, what is this matchup about? Whereas historically, I would play in a gate in that spot. The thing is, is that the deck also has a problem with Shieldred, and it happens to answer all of those things. Mm-hmm. So you have to both know your problem and then decide. In that case, I'm a I'm trying to be uh proactive or reactive. Whereas against the aggro decks, uh I've already mentioned that I like a proactive card. I'm trying to say, can you beat this five five flyer without damage? So mm-hmm. um this is a question that I actually got from the listeners when I posted the schedule because I think that some of the listeners knew what this was going to be about and it's can I have too many reactive or proactive cards Mason why don't you talk about that and so it really matters much more about your plan so that the short answer is uh probably but most likely if you built your plans correctly it won't super matter so I will use a current example of where I have recently done this so in the neoform attracts a deck in uh pioneer I have uh, 13 reactive cards in my sideboard because my whole deck is about changing the thing in the main deck that is trying to pick something apart with the better version of the sideboard. So a good example might be I have four Raven Fieldmans. That's a white hate card. I take out four Thoughtseize because against Mono White, it isn't what I want, right? And I have two proactive cards in Pack Rat in order to solve some problems against Control Decks, Creativity, and the Spirits matchup. And I am basically knowing that my deck still works. And I spend a lot of time uh, working on sort of the sideboarding, making sure that, okay, this deck still functions and I have a good balance. And this is where over-sideboarding can come in, where if you don't do this and you just have a sideboard that's all reactive cards or all proactive cards, you could sideboard in a bunch of things and your deck no longer functions. But if you have enough things, if you have a bunch of a thing in one category, but you're not bringing them in all the time, your deck will still function, so it will work. So the answer to the question in my opinion, is uh, only if you've done the work to make sure your deck actually functions. Will it be a problem? And if well, not, it'll be fine. So th- this is a real question, though, because, like, mm-hmm. um, uh, can I can I shout out Carmen really quick? Sure. I, I uh, you, you, Your partner, Carmen, is actually the one that taught me a really important lesson about this. I don't know if she did an article or if it was a tweet, but uh, it was about over sideboarding. And mm-hmm. one of the things that was really important is like, I, uh, I follow the Willie Adel method of like building a deck of like beat mm-hmm. aggro first, because if you can't beat aggro, you probably can't win an event. Um, and then one of the things that I realized that, and then one of the things that I realized is that I overbuild my sideboard for aggro decks because I build my main decks to be a mid-range mirror. And so I have to do specific things. And in this specific scenario, while we're talking about this in this, in this podcast, the reason to do something like Phyrexian Vindicator is because it is a checkmate card. I'm saying rather than dedicating X number of slots, I'm going to dedicate these slots so that you, I'm asking you a question now. And I think that the understanding is like, 
it is a balance. And what Mason is saying is that you have to balance your game plan versus your opponent's game plan and then make decisions. It is possible that your deck is all proactive cards. It's also... I I don't think it's possible that it's... Or, sorry, reactive cards. I don't think it's possible that it's all proactive cards. And that's probably a bad sideboard. Do you agree? Yeah, it, it would take a really specific scenario for your sideboard to be all proactive cards. It'd be really hard. You could have an all reactive sideboard. I believe that. I think that... I can't think of a format where I would want that right now, but I have certainly had those sideboards in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the next question, Mason, is when I'm considering how my opponent is sideboarding, should I be thinking about how they're approaching this? A hundred percent. So uh, it's so funny. I, I didn't even realize how much when I said earlier at the beginning that I always approving segment would circle in here. But if you remember, I mentioned you sort of you, you pick the cards, you think you look at it, you're going to sideboard. Then you think about how they're going to sideboard because that is such an important part of this. Because when you are sideboarding, you want to sideboard for their game two and three deck, not their game one deck. Your opponent doesn't just shuffle back up. They change cards as well. So you want to be thinking about how they're sideboarding and work from there and consider like, okay, if my opponent is, you know, taking out a bunch of, you know, let's say thought seizures in the matchup, I don't want to bring in a bunch of veil of summers if thought seizures is the only thing it hits, right? You want to actually sort of make choices that make sense with the sort of the way they're building their deck. And this is why I always encourage people to listen and get as much content as they earthly can about as many decks as they can, because it's great to sort of, you know, if you're a four-color player, like reading my cyborg guys, like sure that's gonna help you. But if you also have access to like a Merktide guide, you should or a friend who plays Merktide, you should be talking and listening and watching streams and reading articles because you want to understand what they're doing for you so that you can make choices for the bigger picture. I my team actually has a Merktide sideboard and list. I'm gonna ask mm-hmm. permission to post that for this. Um for just for this exact reason, and then answer questions. Because I, I think that this is an opportunity for us to like help people understand like why are we sideboarding the way we are? Why is our sideboard built the way we are? So let me let me talk to my team. Um and I, I believe that we can post this. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, I, I agree with Mason though. I think that this is something that I was not good at early on. Like I would often pick it, this is kind of goes back to our last segment where like I would pick mono reactive sideboards to answer their game one decks rather than thinking about like proactive stuff. And this has changed a lot in magic. I, I you know, I think that, you know, when you see the number of Merktide decks, for example, that play like two blood moons right now, um, it, it, people ask different questions They they, they recognize the parameters of a format and the strengths of your own deck to try and capitalize on on your advantages. But I do think that, um, you know, it it leaves you open to vulnerabilities if you don't plan your sideboard as an entire 75. And this is something that this podcast has talked a lot about, but probably not enough in the last couple years, is that you're not submitting a 60 plus 15 you are submitting a 75 and you need, you need your cohesive 75 to exist. 
Yeah, so when you're building your deck and thinking about the sideboard and everything and having this cohesive plan, we can't under, understate how important that is because you're going to play more sideboard games than preboarded games. And that means that this is an important part of actually understanding this flow and just throwing a couple distant chants for this and a couple kill spells for that and negate here. And then, oh, I got this pivot threat. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I just bring cards in. That is fine if you just want to play magic casually. But if you really want to compete and play RCQs, you need to have a good, thorough plan for every single thing you're doing. And you should be able to say something along the lines of like, well, I, I, the way I should say this is you should be able to answer my questions. If I come up to you and I'm like, hey, why do you have pack rat on your sideboard? You should be able to instantly say, yeah, I know a creativity player is all sideboard out. There's spot removal, spirits players, you know, they can answer resolve threat. And I just need some card that is a pivot threat in this matchup. So I've gone for pack rat for those reasons. And it doesn't even matter if that's the best or the worst card for the matchup. Having a plan beats no plan and sort of working with all that. Did Michael Hinderocker just join the show again? That was the most Michael Hinderocker answer I've ever heard. I loved it. Uh, that was great. I'm t- plus five points for Mason. Somebody start keeping track. Um, no, I, I agree. I, I think that, you, you know, I I use a lot of, like, my examples because, like, that's what I can do. But I think we see it in a lot of different sideboards, a lot of different main decks. And the players that have success, they have clear game plans. And um, I'm going to use Smash as, as an example. Um, this weekend, I got to watch, watch Smash Summit 6 for Ultimate. And um, there is, finally, for the first time in a long time, a debate of who the best player in the world is in this game between, I think, a Cola Tweak and um mkleo uh for those who follow the the game but these are mkleo for example is like won every tournament ever in this game for a long time before kind of falling off and the metagame changed and then tweak was always the second best player and then this japanese player uh who's really good kind of has come onto the scene and like questioned everybody with a character that is now considered getting banned and what this has taught me in Magic is that uh, Tweak, who plays zero top-tier characters, like actually zero, he, he plays, uh, for those who, who know Smash, he plays Diddy Kong and Sephiroth, uh, probably a B-tier and like a C-tier character. His game plan and his matchup knowledge has outweighed everything else that he does in a game where um, understanding matchups is really important where there's 80 characters. And if you think about something like modern pioneer and standard right now, we did a standard episode and I, I, I said on the show, Mason, that I think we covered only eight decks. And I think there's more than eight decks that deserve credit in standard. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the last time that we could say that. I don't know either, to be honest, like, this is the best standard format maybe ever. I think people are underappreciating that going into like Darcy's. Uh, I just think like one of the things that was really funny to me is like, you know, Mono Blue was one of the most played decks at the first Canadian RC. And then Rakdos just crushed the second RC. And there was a clear understanding of, okay, people are going to play a lot of Field of Ruin. Let's not play blue in our Grixis decks. 
and just play the best version of this deck that also is just better against aggro decks. Um, I, I, I think that there are interesting questions being asked there and what we need to understand and the thing that I learned from Smash just this weekend is that you can succeed with the right game plan. And I am not of the opinion that we need to play... I, I like I like what you say, Mason, this like a reasonable deck game plan, right? I'm not playing mm-hmm. some F tier deck. I'm gonna I, I, if I'm playing a B and above, but I have a really clear game plan and a reason for what I'm doing, my reason and my game plan outweigh somebody that's just playing an S tier deck with no reason and no game plan. And this topic, this cyborg topic, really hammers that home. Mm-hmm. I big agree. So that is going to do it. Um, Mason, this is a new thing that I want to do. So we can edit it out if it sucks. But how can people apply this this week? Do what I said at the beginning of the episode and do it now. Where uh, ser- Seriously, like I'm, I'm going to literally give you all a free little mini thing I do in coaching. You just don't get to do it with me. So pick a matchup in whatever format you like against a deck that you're going to be very popular and play against a lot. Think about what three cards of theirs are the best cards. The, the ones that make you grow and the ones you can't beat. Think about their, the two cards that you're the happiest to see, the ones that maybe don't do anything. Do the same thing for your deck. Think about how you sideboard. Think about how they're probably going to sideboard. Spoiler alerts, the two bad cards probably come out. That's going to make it easy for you. And then now that you've done that part, go back to your deck and think about, okay, they're doing this. I'm doing this. Do I want to change anything now that this has happened? And then, Spencer, the sort of secret is that, you know, I don't really tell people is when I'm often building my sideboards is I'm doing this with all the cards available to me. And then I sort of build my plans from there. I'm like, okay, these are things I want to do. This is what I want to have happen to me. I don't have this rigid sideboard. It's easier when you're doing this with a rigid sideboard. But then now you're sort of thinking about, okay, do I have proactive, reactive cards? How does this matchup play out? How do these things go? And sort of really think about like, okay, I have thought about the matchup. I have thought about how the matchup is playing out. I have now picked cards to help me play the game plans that I think I want to play on a macro level in this matchup. And then go from there and do that with a bunch of matchups. And you will stumble and it will be hard at first, but it will lead to huge benefits when you think through your deck and your game plan like this. Yeah, I I have very little to add because... One, I think that I taught you some of this, but two, I also think that like when you think about how to apply this topic, it becomes about identifying the problems that your deck has pre and post board and then applying the appropriate solutions and then building your entire 75 across it. And um, one of the things that I challenged the people that I coach to do is if is being able to articulate it and this this actually comes from something that happened at work at one point that i'm going to talk about this podcast is that if i cannot articulate the problem we are trying to solve to somebody else to help them understand why we're trying to solve it i probably don't have an understanding of that problem because Mm -hmm. i yeah go ahead no, I was just gonna say I, I said I was about to say being able to teach somebody something is a great way to sort of know it inside and out. If you can't yeah. teach it, you might understand it, but you maybe don't have a mastery of it. Right. So, like, 
if I'm building a sideboard, I need to be able to help somebody understand. And I think you said this earlier in the episode, is that if I walked up to you and say, why are those distant chants in your sideboard? And your answer is because Reckon or, uh, Reckon or Bankbuster exists. That's not a good answer. Mm-hmm. Like, is Reckon or, is Bankbuster the problem? If so, what is the problem with Bankbuster and solve that problem? And I think that that is how you need to apply this is, you know, there there are things that you can do to solve that problem without it just being disenchanted. So, uh, that is it for the trading grounds. Uh, let us know what you think. Leave a comment, uh, you know, on YouTube if you're listening there. It's one of the best ways to help us grow the show um, as well as give us feedback. Uh, or just email the show, ccmg.info.gmail.com. Let's know what you thought of this training grounds. Patreons get to ask a question every single week. And then our bonus episodes include all the questions we haven't answered recently. This week, Christian says, when picking a deck for an important tournament, how much do you value, uh, how much do you value what you think the best deck is versus what you feel the most comfortable with personally and like the most? I'm going to go first. I'm going to do a really important tournament. I... I think that valuing what the best deck is has been a mistake for me in the past, and I might currently be underrating it. I think the best deck right now is Esper Legends. Not close. And um, I think that going into the standard RC, people know that. I don't think I think that we are in an era of information where everyone knows that Esper Legends is the best deck. And so, I value a few things. One, it, why is it the best deck is a really important question to me. Uh, if it's the best deck because nobody can beat it, it has no bad matchups, I'm just going to play that deck. Like, I played Cobblade. I went off of a Primeval Titan deck. Like, listen, if you know me, I went off of a Lotus Cobra Primeval Titan deck to play Cobblade. I'm willing to do that. I do not believe that is the case with Esper Legends. However... If it was, that that answers your question. If it's that good, you should just play it. And you should figure out stuff for it. I think a lot of people believe that about Grixis like four weeks ago. Maybe maybe more than that. Maybe six weeks ago. I think a lot of people still think it for it's worth. But uh, that's probably, a different they're, conversation. They're wrong. Um, uh, I do think, though, the question of like what you're most comfortable with and what you like the most... That is a different question because uh, it depends on who you are as a player. Um, This is something that Smash taught me that I'm going to go back to Smash. Uh, I love three characters in Smash total. I love Greninja, I love Pokemon Trainer, and I love Wolf. And they are very different characters, but like kind of have a some similar things between them. And magic is a really similar in a lot of ways where like, if there's a good ramp deck, I will probably just play the ramp deck. It has to follow the rules of engagement for the format. And I have to be able to win with it. But um, it's for a specific reason. It is because I play magic better when I'm happy. So I have to outweigh like how happy am I playing this deck 
versus how well do I want to do in this tournament versus how good is this deck? And that is a personal question. Like you get to decide this part. And I think asking me and Mason and Abe this question about how we value these things, that's that's not how this works. I don't I don't believe it's how it works. Um, you know, we had a is it Kellen? Is his name Kellen? Kellen Pastor. Yeah. We had Kellen on. The dude can crush it with anything he loves. But he probably can't crush it with things he don't doesn't love. He doesn't play good magic that way. That that is important. PV, we had PV on when he was playing Esper Dragons. PV is the same way. Like PV has to be into his deck. T- PV, when he played silver, uh, when he got silver instead of gold for the first time ever, he played Burn It Two Pro Doors. Like this is a personal question, is my opinion. What about you, Mason? I have a question for you, actually, Spencer, and I, I'm not, I'm legitimately curious to hear what you say, think about this, and we can get rid of it if you want to. Do you think the fact that your enjoyment directly ties to how well you, you mentioned your enjoyment ties to how well you play or is a factor in it, do you think that is a spot for improvement in you or do you think that's a thing that you should own? That's an interesting question. I, I think that, like, uh, I... Ooh, this is an interesting question. I do not believe that you can change this part about yourself. I am curious if you believe that you can. But, like, one of the reasons that I learned to play aggro decks the way that I did, and one of the reasons that I think in the next year I'll learn to play combo decks the way that I did, is so that I can have more fun doing those things. Um, so I do believe that it's something that you can improve on, because knowledge gives me enjoyment. But uh, I'm going to pick something that I'm going to enjoy because uh, I do not play good magic when I'm miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, and there are lots of decks that I have just said, I'm not playing that. It's not fun for me. Like, that I I won't play unless it's clearly so much better than everything else. And, yeah, I, and I think that having that exception to the rule is already enough for me to be able to answer this question. That's kind of, I was just curious. I you, you asked if I thought it was different. I think the thing is, is I find what is fun about the deck and focus on that. And I try not to think about what's fun and not fun. Like, I... I really do not like playing against the Modern Green Devotion deck in Pioneer. I find it to be one of the, probably the most unfun experience I've ever had playing competitive Magic on the regular. But I try to find, I've played a lot of Mono Green and played against it a lot. I try to find the fun in things. I also just try not to think about it at all. Like, it, a, a big complaint that people had during the beginning of the RC season last summer was, oh, this format's so awful. Oh, it's just Rakdos. Oh, it's like, or it's, oh, it's just uh, Modern Green. It's all modern green. It's the only thing you can do, blah, blah, blah. And they were all wrong, right? Like, we saw that very clearly as time went on. And some of that was new card things a little bit. But I believe that Lotus Field probably could have adapted to modern green a little bit sooner and done a little bit better. And same for multiple decks. Like, Arclight Phoenix didn't get any new cards. It could have been a thing that whole time. And so, uh, 
at the time, I just didn't care about whether the format was fun or not because the fun part for me is getting to the Pro Tour and improving and playing Magic and figuring out how to solve the problem. So I, I think that we're basically in line. I just approach the fun aspect of it a little bit different. I, I frame it differently, so I think about it differently, if that makes sense. Not to say either of us are wrong. It does. It's just like the opinion. To answer Christian's question, I what I was going to say is very similar to what you said there at the end of you need to figure out what your goals are in the event. Like when I play league, sometimes I just play the worst things you've ever seen. Cause I have this idea and I really want to do it and that's fine. But I'm playing like a big event that really matters to me. Uh, and I, I assume like by the nature of the question, the big event is something that you're traveling for or you've worked towards a bunch. I'm going to pick the thing that I think gives me the best chance of succeeding. Uh, and it's at minimum going to be a reasonable deck, which is something we mentioned earlier in the show of like, if I walk up, to read Duke and Reed's like, oh, hey, Mason, I love being on the show. What deck are you playing? Whatever. And I tell him my deck, Reed goes, oh, that's totally reasonable. You know, like that's a reasonable choice. And that I think is a big part of it because it is really hard to actually metagame wide open tournaments in Magic. And it is often best to have a good deck that you understand really well and you can play well and it's just not bad. So like four color control, best deck of all summer, whatever, I played it all the time. It wasn't close. I put it in RCQ recently because I knew it was a deck that was very good given the updates and I could play really well. And it was important. Like the RCQ mattered for me because I wanted to qualify for the RC in Dallas. So I played the deck that I thought would give me the best, even though like common knowledge would say that I should play the Hammer Time deck, which I do think is maybe the best deck in modern. Um, and I own that deck. But I played the four color deck because I just knew it was the thing to give me the best shot because I hadn't time to practice hammer in two months so uh to answer your question you have to do those things <laughs> i think i think we they got it uh if you want to join mm-hmm. the conversation you can leave a youtube comment with a question you can join the patreon join the patreon questions the bonus episode includes all the patreon questions we haven't answered that month so it's a great way to make sure that your question is heard um, you can also just tweet at us on Twitter, join the conversation through the public Discord for Easy Game Media or the private Discord for patrons of the show. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to check out the rest of the network right now, uh, I got an edited episode of Mythicast coming up with uh, Michaela did it without me because my son was sick, but I just want to give her a shout out. Uh, it's a really cool Devacos that's able to take over a role when... Uh, I'm not available. I just, I think Michaela's great and one of the better Magic players that people don't talk about. As well as Sam Black's uh, amazing drafting archetypes. It is one of the best Magic podcasts. On my private Twitter, uh, I I just tout this podcast all the time. I think that what Sam is doing is unparalleled for Magic content right now and it will give you immediate gains as well as make you question your beliefs in a given limited format. And as we get closer to understanding seasonal preparation and there will be more seal tournaments because of this, it's going to be an unparalleled podcast to help you understand formats. Uh, Like, comment, sub, review. Those are the best ways to support the show without monetary value. And then if people want to find me, they can find me at Spencer13H. Uh, they can email me at uh, spencerhowland at gmail.com. Uh, I don't have any available coaching sessions. I'm coaching as many people as I can right now. Um, but I would encourage you to reach out to Abe at uh, More Nothings on Twitter. Uh, he's pretty great and has a ton of spots. 
Mason, you're a full-time coach. Where will people reach out to you? Reach out to me. Uh, sorry, hang on. You can find me uh, at Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. You can find, you can reach out to me via email if you want to talk about coaching as well. Mason E. Clark at gmail.com. I have uh, a couple of abilities open. I have some people who sort of wanted to do stuff they are seeing they're getting off now. So now's a great time to sort of hop in. And you can find my articles each and every week over at Card Kingdom. I got to read your last one. I'm really excited for it. If you uh, love the show, make sure to leave a like, a comment, and a review. I already mentioned that, but I wanted to mention it again because it actually is really important to help the show out. Every week on the show, we talk about what we learned because this show is about always improving. Mason, um, this was one of my favorite episodes. It went longer than I expected, mostly because I just was letting you go off, man. Like, I I legitimately have not thought about how I was building my sideboards correctly in a long time. Not that I didn't know it, but, like, um, thinking about this episode and how I was building my sideboard and why I include cards... Um, it's going to really help me for the RC. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, looking at my deck as a 75, as I prepare for this tournament, it's not that I learned it, but it's, it's kind of like a good reminder. Yeah. I think that's something we talk about a lot here and you'll see me mention it sort of in passing and always improving segments where it's like, sometimes we're going to have repeats for working on the same thing for a while. Cause just because you got something down the past does not mean you have it down forever. And you often have to stay constantly vigilant in it. Uh, mine sort of came from our conversation there. Well, what, one of the things I say and I'll highlight here is it comes away from the the thing you love and like uh, does it affect your game plan I do. And I think hearing the way you talked about it was very interesting and really opening on sort of like we are saying similar things, just viewing them differently. And I think that is always really interesting and really sort of telling. And so well, there's a lot of little things in the episode. I think that was the one that stuck out to me the most and it's going to carry with me going forward. Yeah, I mean, you also challenged me there. It was going to be mine, but I, I didn't want to, like... I hadn't thought about it yet. But it is interesting, mm -hmm. like, why don't I enjoy this thing? And is it because I don't understand it? It's like a question I'm going to ask myself. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'll frame it there. Listener, what was the thing you learned the most in the episode? Tweet at CCMTG and let us know. And we will see all of y'all next week for episode 451 of Constructed Chris.